Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are in the room live, watching live online, later on demand, or listening to our podcast, our prayer is for you to experience the life-changing power of God in your life today. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. That team is made up of people committed to helping you grow. People grow here because our team loves to challenge, encourage, and equip people to become more like Jesus. If this is your first time visiting Dayspring, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. We're just like you, imperfect people on a journey. We're allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives, learning to live like him, a little more today than yesterday, a little more tomorrow than today. Even if you aren't sure that you're ready to be on that journey with us, maybe you are skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of his followers. Well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking those same questions and looking for answers too. So I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church by checking out our Facebook page or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. Well, welcome to the second week of our series, Beautiful Surrender, the blessing of a Psalm 23 life. Uh, for the rest of the summer, we're going to unpack the riches of, you guessed it, Psalm 23. Uh, it is arguably the most well-known and loved psalm inside and outside the, of the church. Uh, if you've ever been to a funeral, you've probably heard someone read it. I'm pretty sure it's the go-to psalm for every funeral I've ever seen in a TV show or movie. That, not that they usually read the entire psalm, but certainly, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, makes it in there. But while there is comfort in these precious words, just like the Apostle Paul never intended 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter of the Bible, to be a wedding poem, King David never intended Psalm 23 to be a funeral song. It is so much more than that. As we began to see last week, Psalm 23 describes the blessing of a life that is fully surrendered to Jesus. Not a perfectly surrendered life. Not even David could live up to that standard. But a perfectly surrendering life. The life of someone committed to actively and intentionally becoming like Jesus. I know that you want a life blessed by God just as much as I do. Let's be honest, none of us ever prays for a life without God's blessing. I'll be transparent enough to say that I'm greedy for God's blessing, and I'd guess that I'm in pretty good company. But I'd also guess that if I asked you to define or describe what God's blessing would look like in your life, if you had it, we'd end up with a whole bunch of different definitions. Uh, think about it. Even scholars don't all agree on one definition. Denominations have different understandings of a life blessed by God. Some denominations believe that a fully surrendering life means that you'll be blessed with a life that's always headed up and to the right. 
That is, God's blessing will come in the form of, a, of bigger bank accounts and better health, problem-free lives. And sure, who wouldn't want bigger bank accounts, better, better health, and problem-free lives? But that's not what God's Word promises. Smaller bank accounts, worser health, and problems are God's training ground for faith. Those are the things he often uses to make us more like Jesus. Now, the good news for us is that even with smaller bank accounts, health problems, and problem problems, God's blessing is still available to a person whose life is fully surrendered to Jesus. We just need to know what we're looking for. And wouldn't you know it, the, the words of Psalm 23 give us the best picture of the blessing of God in simple, concise language. Only 55 words in the original language. A few more in ours. As I challenged you last week, these words are worth memorizing, and anyone who recites them to one of the pastors word for word in the Bible translation of your choice by the end of this series, Labor Day weekend, will get a free drink of their choice from our coffee shop. Uh, someone's already tried. Didn't quite make it, but she's coming close. Uh, there are still some memory verse cards at the back of the room if you didn't get one last week or want another one. I'm going to do everything I can to help you. So if you are here in the room, would you stand with me? Go ahead and stand up and let's read Psalm 23 out loud. Let's read these precious words together. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Very good. Please be seated. We are almost ready to get to verse 1. At the rate we're going, some of you are thinking it's going to take us until Christmas to get through these six verses. I'm beginning to wonder myself, but if we're really going to appreciate the blessings David talks about, we need to understand the context. The shepherding profession is as old as time itself. In the days of Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, shepherding was a noble profession. The nomadic lifestyle made everyone a shepherd, rich or poor, everyone was a shepherd. And so it was with the patriarch of Israel, Abraham. David's story finds its root in him. Abraham was the father of Isaac, a shepherd, who was the father of Jacob and Esau, also shepherds. Jacob had 12 sons who were, you guessed it, shepherds. One of Jacob's sons, Joseph, was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. 
There he was first the house manager for Potiphar, the captain of the Pharaoh's, of Pharaoh's guard, and then the prison manager for the prison's warden before being elevated to second in command of all of Egypt where he managed the kingdom for Pharaoh. When famine hit the region, Jacob invited his family of shepherds to emigrate to Egypt where they would be under his care. But since the Egyptians who were crop farmers hated shepherds because sheep eat crops, he settled them in Goshen, which scholars believe to be the Eastern Nile Delta. Let's just say separated from the Egyptians so that there would be no conflict. That move also introduced a whole new way of life to Joseph's family. And Egypt's prejudiced view of, a, of shepherding influenced a people who over the 430 years of their sojourn in Egypt forgot what it was like to be nomads as they settled into their settled life. When the Israelites crossed the River Jordan into the Promised Land, they left the few tribes who still took care of animals for a living on the other side of the Jordan in what I call Promised Land adjacent. They were almost in the Promised Land, just adjacent. And then as the rest of the Israelites settled into the Promised Land, the focus moved from shepherding to farming and shepherding ceased to be a noble profession. By the time of David, shepherding was considered to be menial labor, on its way to being despised in everyday life, as it was by the time Jesus arrived on the scene. It was the great prophet Samuel who anointed David as the second king of Israel. At the time, uh, Israel wasn't looking for a king. They already had one in King Saul. But Saul's disobedience and self-reliance had God looking for the next king. God sent Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint one of the sons of Jesse. As he looked at the oldest, uh, Eliab, he thought, now here is a fine specimen of manhood. It must be him. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Samuel moves on to Abinadab. And again, no go. Son number three, no. Four, no. Five, six, seven, no, no, no. Is this it? Are you sure you don't have any more sons? Well, there is David. Second Chronicles 16.9 tells us, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And God's eyes found David, a shepherd, an outcast. There was a reason David was with the sheep. You won't find it in most commentaries, but Jewish tradition says that it was believed that David was the son of an adulterous affair by his mother. The story is more complex than we have time for today. In truth, he wasn't born out of wedlock, but everyone believed that he was, including his father. That his mother would rather bear the stigma of being an adulteress than to tell the truth even to her husband tells us how complicated the story is. But what it meant for David was a life of rejection. He was despised and rejected. 
He was treated with scorn and derision by his family. And the larger community of Bethlehem would have followed their lead, assuming that David was full of guilt and sin. Uh, He would have been the object of jokes and pranks. He would have been an outcast. Now, aren't there parallels to Jesus? Aren't that, isn't that amazing? Psalm 69 is said to refer to this season in David's life. And in it, we also see parallels with Jesus. So in a wild turn of events, God chooses the reject. Samuel anoints him and David goes right back out to the sheep. He doesn't actually become king for another 15 years or so. So David returns to his safe place alone in the desert with his sheep. Sheep that brought him joy as they frolicked and played as young lambs tend to do. Sheep that trusted him to make sure that they were well fed and watered. Sheep that trusted him to protect them from harm. Do you know that when sheep hear or sense danger, they don't look toward the danger, but toward the shepherd, the one they trust to protect them. It was only with sheep that David felt like he belonged, like he was with friends. And it was in the desert, surrounded by his woolly friends, that God became his friend. It was there that God laid the foundations for this great, his great work in and through David. Author Robert Morgan, in his book, The Lord is My Shepherd, writes, The profession of shepherding became a classroom for the crown. It was God's apprenticeship for David's kingship. David's time in the desert is proof that God wastes nothing in our lives, nothing when we have surrendered to him. God, God's work in the waiting is always the groundwork for our future. So it was alone in the desert, surrounded by his sheep, perhaps as he contemplated the majesty of the stars, that David gets to know Yahweh. That's how he begins Psalm 23. Yahweh. In English, it's been translated as the Lord, but in Hebrew, it is Yahweh, the most sacred and personal proper name of God. It is the same name that God gave to Moses from the burning bush. It comes from the Hebrew word that means to be or I am. The Hebrew consonants for I am serve as the basis for Yahweh. And for the Jews, this word was too holy, too sacred to speak. So they would substitute the word Adonai, which means the Lord. Uh, Later translators used the word Lord in all capital letters or Jehovah or Jehovah-Rohi. However you translate it, it signifies the God who is eternal the self-sufficient creator of the universe who is, always has been, and always will be Lord of all. Now, by the time we get to the New Testament, Jesus is Adonai Yeshua, the Lord Jesus, which is very significant for our purposes. Uh, Those of us who have been in church all of our lives recognize uh, this thing. It is a hymnal. We project our lyrics onto screens today, but we used to turn to hymn 325. We will sing verses 1, 2, and 4 when we worshiped back in the day. Uh, There are almost 600 hymns in this particular hymnal. 
I don't know if you've ever really looked at how a hymnal is laid out. It would make sense to think that they just put a bunch of songs in there and started numbering one, two, three, on down to 588. But they've actually put a lot of thought into the structure. And most hymnals are put together thematically. That is, the songs about Almighty God are together, the songs about Jesus' birth are together, the songs about heaven are together, and so on and so forth. The same is true with the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. There are 150 Psalms in total, and they haven't just been numbered willy-nilly. There is a plan and purpose to everything. Psalm 23 is the middle of a trio of Psalms about Jesus. As Robert Morgan notes in his book, these three Psalms present the whole story of God's grace as they answer our three greatest questions. What about my past, my present, my future? Psalm 22, written about a thousand years before Calvary, gives us the very words Jesus would speak from the cross, the words his, his persecutors would use, and predicts the humiliation that Christ would suffer on our behalf. Psalm 24 gives us a picture of the final victory of Christ when he assumes his throne in glory. Nestled in the middle is Psalm 23. While Psalm 22 is a psalm about what was, and Psalm 24 is a psalm about what will be, Psalm 23 is about today. Now, what is? Our God who was, who is, and forevermore will be. Now, all that to say, this is a psalm for today. The Lord is my shepherd, and the blessings promised in this psalm are for us today. Now, with all that we know about shepherds and the shepherd boy, David, in particular, the same thing that makes David's rise to power a stark contrast of expectations from reject, uh, reject shepherd to king is the contrast between the God who was, is, and forevermore will be lowering himself from king of kings to the status of a reject shepherd. And could this be anyone but Jesus? He, gave, he himself confirms this. Twice in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus says of himself, uh, first in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. And then in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. Back in Psalm 23, in what the original Hebrew, what, what we see as five words, the Lord is my shepherd, is only two words. Yahweh Rohi or Adonai Rohi. This is the only place in the Bible where these two words are put together. Rohi is the word for shepherd is closely related to the word for companion or close friend which also gives us a lot of insight into not only what kind of relationship David shared with God, but also the kind of relationship we can have with God. He is also our close friend and companion. And if you zoom out and look at the big picture for a moment, we also get a picture of what a surrendered life looks like when we tie it into what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. 
There he writes, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and one purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus lived an others-centered life, which is simply another way to describe a surrendered life. And he calls us to do the same. And it only took two words in Hebrew. So look at that. We've made it about halfway through verse one, and it only took me a message and a half to do it. But now I think we're ready to move on. We don't have to stand for this one, but why don't we all read verse one out loud together? The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. I know you see my strategy. I'm just trying to trick you. I mean, help you memorize this psalm. Repetition is the key. I have all that I need. The King James Version translates this line, I shall not want. Uh, depending on which New International Version you are looking at, the old or the new, you'll read, I shall not be in want or I lack nothing. The newer translations are better renderings of the original Hebrew meaning. Uh, when the good old King James was published back in 1611, the word want meant to be abandoned. So then, the Lord is my shepherd, I will not be abandoned. And it would have meant that God won't abandon our essential needs. To say, today, to say I shall not want could mean something else or be misconstrued as I shall be free of all desires, uh, which is more of a Buddhist philosophy, not a Jewish one. Uh, in Buddhism, there is value in ridding yourself of all desires so that you won't be disappointed. If I don't expect anything, then I can't be disappointed. But our God has created us to experience desires and passions. We experience the fullness of life when we properly filter those desires and passions through our surrender to Jesus. So it really is better to say, I have all that I need, or I lack nothing. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. This is an incredible promise for the surrendering life. It is a promise that is scattered throughout the entirety of Scripture. Another psalm, uh, this one probably written uh, either before or after Israel's exile to Babylon, no one really knows when, says, uh, For the Lord God is our sun and shield. He gives us grace and glory. 
the Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth, and God will generously provide all that you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. And to the church in Philippi, Paul wrote, and this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Uh, this verse comes just a few verses uh, be where, before, after, a few verses after uh, the place where he brilliantly sums up what we're talking about like this. Verse 11, not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with what I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. A fully surrendered life surrender, uh, centers itself around this truth. I lack nothing. I have everything I need. I have enough. I have everything I need physically. I have everything I need emotionally. I have everything I need spiritually. God has given me everything I need and what he has given me is enough for right now. Now let me remind you, this is a promise for the fully surrendered or fully surrendering life. If you're having a hard time settling into this truth on a practical day-to-day -day basis, then I'd suggest you look at your surrenderedness. It's okay that you aren't that far along yet in your faith journey. Most of this comes with maturity in Christ. But this is just what you're aiming for. And if I could boil it down, if I could boil down what you are aiming for into two words, it would be connected contentment. Connected contentment. Fully surrendered followers of Christ experience a connected contentment with what God is doing in them through them and around them. I am content, I am, I am connected because my life is powered by the Holy Spirit. I am intentionally choosing to become like Jesus, a little more today than yesterday, a little more tomorrow than today. So I am connected. I am right now making faith-filled decisions based on the wisdom of heaven. So I am connected. I am abiding in Jesus. So I am connected. I'm not harboring unconfessed sin or a pattern of sin which would disconnect me. Uh, the fear of what might happen tomorrow isn't stealing my faith and focus from today which would disconnect me. My relationship with Jesus is not an add-on to my life when it's convenient which would disconnect me but is the center of my life and my world revolves around it which connects me. Connected contentment. Without the connected part, the contented part could be confusing. Apathy can look like contentment. There are lots of people who call themselves Christians but don't live a fully surrendered life and they're just fine with the status quo. They are content, but they also aren't connected. When you are connected, then contentment means that you are content with what God is doing in you through you and around you. 
You are content with his work in your life. You, you understand who you are in Christ and how he has wired you and gifted you. You aren't avoiding or excusing the parts of your life that have yet to be redeemed, but you are content to let him redeem the rest of your junk in his way and in his time. You live in faith, not fear, knowing that your circumstances, good or bad, aren't a reflection of your relationship with him, but an opportunity to deepen the relationship you already have. There is no need to strive or try to make things happen because you understand that God will get you where God wants you to be when he wants you to be there. This was David, the poet king's forte. While still a teenager, he's crowned king of a nation that already has a king. And then waited about 15 years to take the throne. And it wasn't like he didn't have opportunities to grasp for power along the way. As time passed, he became the country's greatest hero. Everything he did went viral. When King Saul couldn't stand the attention David was getting anymore, David went on the run. David uh, was chased by Saul with a bounty on his life. David had multiple opportunities to take Saul's life but was content to wait for God's timing. His connected contentment didn't need to try to force God's hand. David was content to wait. Besides being content with what God is doing in your life, connected contentment means you are also content with what God is doing through your life. That is the way he is currently deploying your gifts and talents for his glory content with your impact for his kingdom while continuing to grow and develop as a good steward of those gifts and talents. Uh, many of you know that when I was, that I was 20 years old when I figured out that God was calling me to become a worship pastor on staff at a church, not just a volunteer. Not that I was anywhere near as spiritually mature as I am today, which is a good thing for all of us, but I was surrendering. And in my surrender, I somehow understood that I wasn't supposed to strive for that role. Somehow I understood in my spirit that when the time was right, the church would contact me. Until that time, I was supposed to grow and become the best man of God and leader that I could be so that I would be ready. I waited 12 years, most of the time in connected contentment. On those few occasions when I disconnected and tried to make something happen in discontent, God protected me from making any stupid mistakes. He was saving me for Dayspring, and he needed me to be ready for that assignment. And wouldn't you know it, when the time was right, Dayspring called me and asked me to apply. 12 years is a long time to be content, to be patient with what God is doing through you where he's planted you when you know that there's something more. But that's what a surrendered life does. Connected contentment involves letting go of my right to know how, when, or why of my circumstances and instead focusing on my heart and mind and what I know to be true about the one who is sovereign and faithful. So a surrendered life is content with what God is doing in you, through you, and a surrendered life is content with what God is doing around you. Content to allow him to do his perfect work 
in those around you at his perfect pace, patiently allowing love to fill in the cracks of relationships as others experience their own journey with Christ, especially when you can't see the work he's doing in them, in your spouse, your children, your enemies, content in all of your circumstances, at work, at home, with your health, your finances. This might come as a surprise to you, but I am a pastor. I was a pastor long before I was a paid pastor. I have spent a long time pursuing Jesus in surrender with being a pastor as my focus, a long time trying to become worthy of my calling. I am married to a woman who loves Jesus, a woman who is also surrendering, surrendering her life to Jesus, but her role and calling in the body of Christ are different than mine. We're both headed for the same destination, but we are on different journeys. Her relationship with Jesus is different than my relationship with Jesus. He is doing different things in her than he is doing in me. Throughout the course of our marriage, there have been times when she wanted Jesus to work on something else in me, something that bugged her, <laughs> and vice versa. But a surrendered life is content with the pace of God's work in the lives of those around him or her. God doesn't need me to tell him how to do his work in Didi. Believe me, he's got her number. I trust his perfect work in her. She trusts his perfect work in me. That's connected contentment. In faith, I know that I lack nothing. Now, for all of us, the greatest enemy of connected contentment is fear. We spend far too much, too much time worrying about tomorrow than we do about living in the present. We worry about everything. Even the most surrendered, contented Christ followers have their moments. None of us is immune to bouts of fear. We worry about our kids. We worry about our finances. We worry about what it, that diagnosis means. We worry about what's happening in our culture, in our economy. We worry about failure of letting people down. We worry about the loss of our independence as we age. We worry about life spinning out of our control and having to pick up the pieces. We worry about not being enough. Fear in all of its forms, anxiousness, worry, concern, you can call it what you want. In the end, it's still fear. And fear is a double whammy because it undermines our connectedness and our contentment. To be able to, to say, to truly say, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, requires a focus on the present, in the presence of our Savior. That's the only place we can be with Him. We can't be in His presence in our past. Although He is there, we aren't. And we can't be in His presence in our future, again, he is there, but we aren't. And just as Psalm 22 is a psalm of what was, and Psalm 24 is a psalm of what will be, Psalm 23 is a psalm for today, a promise for today. His grace is sufficient for this moment right now. We can't borrow grace from tomorrow or store it up from yesterday. We have his grace right now in the present. Now, this reminds me of one of my favorite Old Testament stories that might shed some light on this subject. Elijah was one of the great Old Testament prophets. 
Uh, he lived during the rule of an evil king of Israel and his even eviler wife, Jezebel. Uh, trying to capture their attention and hearts, God, through Elijah, told Ahab that there would be no rain for three years. And everything dried up, including the brook that was providing water for Elijah. One of the challenges of being a prophet of God in times such as these <laughs> is that you're also stuck with the consequences of an evil, foolish leader's judgment. Of course, God takes care of his own. So 1 Kings chapter 17 tells us, Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks. And he asked her, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her, bring me a bite of bread too. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. And I, I have only a handful of flour left in, in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of, a, of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use whatever's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, there will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. So she did as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. There was always enough oil and flour for today. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need right now. Today. He's got tomorrow taken care of too, but I don't, I don't need tomorrow today so I can let that go. All I need is enough oil for today. Now, as we all know, no one is perfectly surrendered and neither are any of us perfectly surrendering. We're all people in a process that will last for eternity. But here's the beauty of this promise. When we are getting it right, connected contentment is one of the richest blessings God blesses us with. In fact, this one key verse, this one verse is the key to understanding the rest of the psalm. The rest of these verses unpack more of what it looks like to lack nothing in the circumstances of our lives. And we're going to spend the, the rest of this series deepening our understanding of that commitment through the end of summer or Christmas, depending on how it goes. <laughs> but even when we get it wrong, when we are either not connected or not content, or both, there is still blessing because we have clues that help us discover the next step of surrender. Those areas of our life where we don't feel connected or don't feel content are the places we can press into. We can press into whatever it is that we are holding back. And why? So that we can let that go too. Which is really cool because even when we miss the mark, God points the way. 
So as we close, where are you? What is, what is God speaking to your spirit about you? Can you truly say that come hell or high water, I will be content because I have everything I need? And if not, where will you go from here? Let's pray. As we go to pray, I just, I want to give you uh, just a, a couple of moments to just let this truth sit in your spirit. To let God filter what he's trying to say to you through th this, these simple words about your surrender, about what's next, about how you can orient your life in contented, connected contentment. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions on your own or with others will help the truth of God's word begin to shape your life as you grow to be like Jesus. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. We counted a privilege to play a small part in God's perfect work in you today. The people who call Dayspring their home church make this ministry possible. Their faithful giving is proof of God's work in their lives and they just want to pay it forward so you can experience the same life-changing presence of Jesus. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Until we meet again, I am praying that God would give you opportunities to use your influence for the glory of his kingdom. And one more thing, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. If this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives. So keep sowing.